0: Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here. It's pretty fun for me to be able to preach uh, two sermons right after my dad preaches two sermons. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think that was ever going to happen. When I was a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had two things I knew, I had two things I don't want to do for sure. That was my direction. And number one was to be in sales. Number two was to be a pastor. And I've been in sales for the last four years. <laughs> And I'm planning on going to seminary in the spring, so that's usually the way the Lord works, huh? Well, I'm excited to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and as I was considering what passages to teach, I uh, knew that I wanted to do something Christ-centered, something focused on the gospel, because after all, that's, that's what we all need the most. We need to be reminded of the good news about Jesus Christ. We need practical instruction, yes. Uh, That's always a need, and and the scripture is full with um, commands that we should strive to obey. But it's the grace of God, Paul says, that trains us to deny ungodliness. As we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we're transformed from one level of glory to the next. That yes, we're transformed by discipline and by The practices and habits of our Christian life, but primarily it's as those habits are shaped and focused on the person of Jesus Christ specifically that we, that we change and grow. And the gospel is what causes us to stand firm. Paul says in the end of the book of Romans. So I was considering, okay, what passage would I like to preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ from, and I chose one of my favorite passages. In the whole Bible, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. I'm sure you are familiar with the story. It's the story of the, the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus' daughter. And I think it's one of the clearest illustrations of the heart of God towards sinful people. So as you're turning there, uh, the book of Mark begins. Mark 1.1 1, 1, is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of God. It's the beginning of good news. This entire book of Mark is all good news about Jesus. That though we deserve death and condemnation and hell for our sins, there's a Savior who's come. And in this book, in the, in the first couple chapters, we see Jesus is baptized and he begins preaching in Galilee. And doing all kinds of miracles. Casting out demons uh, in, earlier in chapter 5, but before that. He was uh, the paralytic man was lowered down into the house in Capernaum. And throngs of people, that's the word used in Mark 5, throngs of people are coming around Jesus. There's people coming from everywhere to see this great healer, this great teacher, and to find out what he's all about. And immediately before our passage, Mark 5:21, I already mentioned this, but Jesus is over in the, the Gentile section. Or side of the Sea of Galilee in the country of Gadara or the Gadarenes and he's cast out the demons from the man who called himself Legion. He shows his power, the ultimate healer, the ultimate king who can cast out demons and throw them into the swine. And that brings us to our passage today, Mark 5, 21. And I'm going to go through this just in three scenes. Three scenes, this will be a very simple outline. And from these three scenes, I have one main point that I want to show you that Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him, no exceptions. Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him with no exceptions. So, our first scene, we're going to see a desperate request. Mark 5, 21, read with me. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Our first scene, a desperate request. We're introduced here to to Jesus coming back from that region of Gadara across the Sea of Galilee. And he comes back to the Jewish section, probably the town of Capernaum, most scholars think, where Jesus did many of his miracles. And Jesus comes back across from the other side in a boat and it's so crowded that he has to stay on the seashore. For some reason, maybe this is just me, but in, in my mind, whenever I picture some of these scenes, I just think like, oh, the disciples are there and there's a few other people. But, but in this scene here, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people waiting for Jesus earlier, Jesus had tried to escape for a little bit in the book of Mark and get away and pray and, and, and be on his own. And the disciples are saying, where are you? Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, well, I've got to go to some other towns to preach. One preacher says, that's a good way to, to wreck your ministry, get tons of people, start healing them and then leave and don't tell anybody where you're going. But there's tons of people here They're coming from as far as Lebanon Way down in the south In the Negev desert region And they're all there Waiting to see Jesus They want to witness Some kind of miracle They're hearing about This great teacher But one person is singled out By John Mark in this book And it's this man named Jairus And it's interesting It's a Hebrew name It means God shines But what's really interesting Is that he is even named Because if you read Through the book of Mark Most people are not named. Some of the apostles are named and and a few others. But the fact that he's given a name is probably meant to show us that he's a man of prominence. He might have even been someone that some of these people, the recipients of the letter, would have known. They they would have recognized this is a, a prestigious man. And we're told that explicitly that he's a synagogue official. And a synagogue official, it's not like a preacher really or like an elder equivalent. It's more like a, like a modern day New Testament deacon. Someone who would set up the chairs, you know, put out the nine marks books out front and get the coffee and donuts before. That, that's more the idea. And so that's what, that's what Jairus is. He's a synagogue official. But when we're introduced to this man who would have been prestigious, we don't see him holding court with all of his friends and this rich, well-off person, you know, with all these people around him. We see him running up to Jesus, throwing himself at his feet and making a desperate request. And this, as you may know, in this time period, this is not how you would act if you're a synagogue official. If you are elevated, if you're at the top of society, which this man would have been, he's kind of the cream of the crop as a Jewish religious leader, as someone who later we'll see has servants as someone who's probably rich you you kind of strut around with dignity you you you're very measured in the way that you do things it's not you don't run around and you know i don't know play tag it's like we were on a trip as a family in europe and i would get really tired on the bus and lay down in the middle of the different chairs and try to take a nap and my mom really didn't appreciate that she thinks it's very immature it's not what adults do so i couldn't sleep but the point is it's This idea, it's not something what you do as an adult, especially in this society, honor shame. You don't run and throw yourself down at someone else's feet, another man, and make requests. But this man is at his wit's end, and he's going to do whatever it takes. Because as I'm sure all of you understand who are parents, his little daughter is at the point of death. The translation is she's sinking fast. She's about to die probably tried all these other things tried medicines tried cures but nothing's working and she's now at the point of death and Jairus runs up throws himself down at the feet of Jesus and says please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live he doesn't care what he looks like he doesn't care that this is not how you act he goes and throws himself down at the feet of Jesus And this is exactly why Jesus came. The book of Mark says later that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That when people come to him in faith, trusting in him, saying, I believe you, you're the Messiah, you're powerful, you're strong enough. He always goes with them. And that's exactly what we see in verse 24. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. I love this verse because although we don't know, maybe Jesus did say something. I like how Mark describes it because it's like Jesus doesn't even say anything. It's so obvious that Jesus is going to go to the source of this man's need. He just silently goes. He doesn't qualify like, well, maybe if you have enough faith, by the time we get there, she'll be raised from the dead. Jesus is, is able. He's powerful enough. He knows he can raise her from the dead. That's his plan. His mind is set and he's willing. So he just goes with him wordlessly, it seems. He's able and willing To save all those who come to him. And as he goes there's this large crowd and they're falling. Because they're all witnessing this. They're all around looking at Jairus throwing himself down at at the feet of Christ. And they're watching. And they hear this and they go wow he's going to go. We're actually going to be able to witness a miracle. We're going to see this little girl. Is Jesus really who he says he is? We're going to go and watch. We're going to find out what's going to happen. And so they go in and it says they're pressing in on him. I don't know how many of you have been in a mosh pit, but that's kind of like the way that I picture it. <laughs> or we were at a concert at Moe's Alley two nights ago. I forget, the eye towels. And it was, it was pretty, we were getting pressed in on by some, some people with some interesting smells. <laughs> Anyways, they're, 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 there's a huge crowd and they're forcing each other. He's getting smashed in. That's how crowded it is. And he's, he's moving, he's going with Jairus to probably his home to, to see this little girl. Which brings us to our second scene, an unexpected interruption. If we were just reading this story and kind of going with the flow, who would you expect to meet next? Jairus' daughter, right? Okay, his, he goes he's like, "Hey, my daughter's she's at the point of death. We're gonna go, you know. We're going we're gonna go. Talk, he's gonna go heal her. He goes with him." But instead, we're introduced to someone else. Verse twenty-five. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse after hearing about jesus she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought if i just touch his garments i will get well Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So we're introduced to this woman and it's an unexpected interruption. They're on their way. They're jostling. There's all these people jamming in. And what does Jesus do? Stops, who touched me? It's like going, it's like being in a mosh pit and getting pushed around and then stopping in the middle and looking around and saying, who touched me? It's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? There's, there's hundreds of people. They're all jamming into each other. You probably touched 500 people on the way over here. Well, why are you saying, who touched me? But before we're even told that, before he asked this question, we're introduced to this woman Who's the one who touched him? Well, we're told she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had some kind of bleeding for 12 years. And some commentators go into great detail on what that could have been. But, but what we do know is that she had some kind of bleeding that was constant and she's constantly weak because there's, there's so much blood going out of her. And it's not for, you know, a couple of months. It's not for a year, but for 12 years, Think about what we were doing 12 years ago. It was 2010. That's, that's a long time. And this, this entire time she's been suffering, it's like a, a whip is kind of the translation in the Greek is affliction. It's constantly whipping her. And not only that, she spent all her money on different physicians and methods, but has not gotten better. Instead, she's gotten worse. No money left. From physician to physician to physician. Some of you might have experienced something like this, but, but not as bad as the things they would try. You can type in if you really want to know Mediterranean hemorrhaging cures, you know, Second Temple Judaism. And you, you, you know just by reading them, this is not going to work and it is going to make things worse. So It's so easy to sympathize with this woman. It's one of the reasons I love this passage so much because she has this physical pain and it grows so much worse from her spending all her money on these physicians. And now she has no money left. She has nothing else to try, but she's heard reports about this teacher. There's somebody going around and he's healing people. And he's teaching them and he's doing miracles and he's casting out demons. And maybe she heard he cast out that famous demon-possessed man legion across the lake. Maybe she's heard about the paralytic man who'd been lowered down by his friends. She's heard enough to have faith. And so she goes to Jesus and touches him. But just to add a little bit more color, it's not just the physical pain that we can be sympathetic with because in this culture, there would have been so much more than just the physical effects of this affliction in this time. Remember, they're living under the Jewish ceremonial law and Leviticus 15 is very specific that if you have some kind of bleeding, whether it be monthly or if you're permanently affected with that, you're perpetually unclean. That there was two different states that you could be in, in under this law of God. You could be clean or you could be unclean. And you were constantly going into the unclean, uh, unclean category if you lived in Israel at this time. But you'd have to do different ceremonies and offer sacrifices to become clean again to be able to enter the temple. And anyone that you touched, if you were unclean, they would become unclean as well. So she, even if she wasn't infecting or contagious with her affliction, she was contagious with making people unclean. Anyone that she touched or was near, anyone who sat on a chair or a bed after she had sat on it would be unclean and would be unable to be around other people in this society. So not only does she have the physical pain, not only is it made worse by all the doctors, but she's completely alone. No one to sit with her and be with her, no one to comfort alone. And in addition to that, she can't even turn to religion in a sense. Many people who have hard lives are so much more receptive to the gospel or to at least ideas about God and spirituality. That's where people turn when they're in physical pain. But she can't even go into the temple. She can't see her sacrifices. She can't go to the synagogue and hear instruction from the Pharisees. She can't do anything. She's completely cut off from from community and in the perspective of this time period cut off from God. But she hears reports about Jesus. And so she goes up behind him and touches his cloak or his tassels. And she thinks, I'm just going to go up, I'm going to touch his tassels, And I'm going to sneak back off and I'm going to be healed. And then, you know, I'll get back on my feet and I can like tell people, I promise I'm not unclean anymore. And I'll have friends and I'll be restored. And I don't have to, I don't have to go through the embarrassment of being public. And when she does it, it says immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. She touches Jesus. And when the hand of faith touches Jesus, there's instantly new life. The creator is also the recreator. He's the word of God. He's the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. He is the creator. All things were made through him. Without him, there was nothing made that was made. And he gives new life to her. But one commentator says Jesus is not just content to dispense a miracle, he wants to encounter a person. And so that is when he says, Who touched me? And it says he was looking around for the woman who touched him. It's actually in, it's, it's a feminine word. He knows, he knows it's a woman. He knows who did it, but he wants to, to speak with her. He wants to encounter her. And if you think about this from Jairus and all the crowd's perspective, they're rushing, they're excited. Here's Jesus, he's going to heal this little girl. We're on our way. This is going to be great publicity for God's kingdom. You know, a synagogue, rulers, daughters healed. And then Jesus just stops and says, who touched me? It's like, Jesus, get with the program. Like, you're just out of it. You don't get it. But Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. He just ignores them. Just ignores their dumb comments. Ignores their unbelieving thoughts. I'm glad the Lord ignores the dumb things that we say and do he keeps looking That's the idea he's looking he's looking and looking and looking not content to move on until he finds this woman but the woman fearing and trembling aware of what had happened her came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth why is she afraid well maybe she's afraid because she's not supposed to she's unclean and she's like a leper you know supposed to say unclean unclean and she shouldn't be out in this crowd making all these other people unclean Maybe she's afraid because she's touching Jesus and she thinks, did I make him ceremonially unclean? Those could all be the case, but this word fear and trembling in the book of Mark is used oftentimes to describe when a sinful person encounters the power of God. Peter does the same thing, right? He's afraid. He thinks he's going to die in the boat. Remember? Remember? Peter is so afraid. He's like, oh, there's this storm and I'm going to die. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And then Jesus says, be still. And then Peter's not afraid anymore, right? No, he's even more afraid. He was so afraid he thought he was going to die. Then Jesus speaks and says, be still. And then Peter increases in fear because of the person who's in his boat. Because when we encounter the, the power of God, When we know that it's God himself who is dealing with us, who we stand before, we feel our sin. And this woman, yes, she was probably sick through no fault of her own. But she was a sinner. And when she saw the power of God, she knew, I am guilty. I'm sinful. That's the response of all of us when we see the holiness of God. Because God is righteous and just and pure. And we are so unclean, not just sick or ceremonially unclean but in our hearts we're turned in on ourselves luther would say or paul says we hate god and we hate one another we're inventors of evil we come into this world sinful and we spend all our money on all kinds of things but we only grow worse we increase the guilt before god that we already inherited in adam and so she feels this guilt And she comes down, fearing and trembling, and she tells him the whole truth, anyways. And what do you think that she's expecting to hear from Jesus? What do you think she's expecting to hear from God? How dare you touch me? I'm on a mission, I'm going to go deal with these important people. She's probably expecting something like she had gotten from the representatives of God her entire life, the Pharisees and this Jewish legalistic system, some kind of condemnation, some kind of judgment. But what does the Lord Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, he calls her his daughter. We've already met Jairus' daughter. Now we meet Jesus' daughter. Daughter. And what's the love of a of, of father towards a daughter? Well, a father would throw respectability to the wind and throw himself down before someone if there was hope of saving his daughter. We've already seen a picture. What's a father's love like for his daughter? And Jesus applies that to this, to this woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Not only has your faith made you well, are you physically healed, but go in peace. It's this idea of shalom, it's fullness, it's life, it's peace, it's spiritual life. He doesn't just give her physical life, but he gives her salvation, forgiveness. She's expecting condemnation. But Romans 8 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we come to Jesus Christ in faith, he never condemns. He never turns away. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's such a beautiful picture of how the Lord treats those who don't deserve his love and grace. The bottom of the totem pole in a sense of society. So we see an interruption an unexpected interruption. And finally, we see a powerful resolution. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the, the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kum, which translated means little girl I say to you arise immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astounded and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and he said that something should be given her to eat a powerful resolution What we see here is even as Jesus is still talking, as he's giving this life dispensing promise to her that she's well and that she has shalom and peace now and fullness of life. Even while he's still talking, the, the servants come from the house of Jairus and say, don't trouble the teacher anymore. She's dead. You didn't make it in time. While he's still talking. Jesus is still saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And there's this interruption. Don't bother her any. Don't bother him anymore. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Again, he doesn't even respond to them. He completely ignores these comments of unbelief. We've seen examples of belief in. In Jairus and in this hemorrhaging woman, we've seen examples of unbelief in the disciples and now these servants. But Jesus completely ignores them. And overhearing what was being spoken, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Only believe. Or keep believing is a little translation. Keep believing. Don't be afraid. In my my imagination, I don't know if this happened or not, but, but Jesus locks eyes with Jairus looks over at him while they're trying to tell him Jairus is, you know, the yo oh, she's dead. It's too late. He looks up from the woman and looks over at him, and says, don't be afraid. Keep believing. You've seen what I'm able to do. You've seen what I do when people come to me in faith. Even if it's this affliction that it makes you unclean for 12 years, I'm able to heal. And I'm able to do more than that. I can raise from the dead. Keep believing. You came to me in faith. Keep believing. And I'm sure Jairus was disappointed. Maybe he was worried as this whole encounter is happening with the hemorrhaging woman. It's like, can't she come later? She's already been sick for 12 years. Can we circle back and come back to the hemorrhaging woman? Like, my daughter's at death's door. But Jesus just looks at him. Don't be afraid any longer, keep believing. He's in control. He knows exactly what's going on. He's God. He knows what he's going to do. He has power to raise from the dead. And so he doesn't need to rush. He can take his time deliberately, increasing the faith and trust of the people around him. And although I don't think this is the point of the passage, it's, I think it's such an encouragement for those of us who are going through trials. Don't be afraid anymore. Keep believing. Yes, you've trusted in Christ. Yes, you have believed your sins are forgiven. And the Lord Jesus knows exactly what he's doing with your life. He's in total control. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Every detail of your life and my life is perfectly arranged to cause us to glorify God, to trust him more, to love him more. Everything comes custom from the hands of the Lord Jesus. And we know he loves us so we don't have to be afraid anymore we need to keep believing keep going and as they walk he he, they get to the house and there's this commotion they would pay these professional mourners back then so you had to have like at least two or three they're usually women and they were professional they'd go around and you'd like a commercial mourner like I don't know you like call the truck on the side of the thing and they come cry at your house So basically they come and they're just weeping and like, you know, just, just, it says it's a commotion there. It's, it's an uproar. And I'm sure, you know, you're walking around the corner gyrus, and you hear that and it's like, okay, here, here it is again. And I, I imagine again, Jesus looking over with that look, don't be afraid, keep believing you've seen what I can do with faith. But Jesus gets there and he says, why make a commotion and weep? This person's not dead. They're sleeping. And they instantly, in their cynicism, just start laughing. Like, we're professionals. We do this all the time. We know what dead people look like. We're commercial mourners. Like, this is what we do. And they laugh in their cynicism. But Jesus, he's not saying a a scientific statement. He's saying in his sovereignty as the God-man, as the one who's in control of every single thing that has happened on this earth in his plan... This, is, this death is not going to be longer than 20 minutes. It's like a sleep. It's like a little nap. But they're laughing at him, so he puts them out. Jesus doesn't allow these, all these people to, to see this. This is going to be a private miracle for those who believe, who have faith. So he brings Peter and the, the disciples that are with him and the mother and father into the room with him. They go over to the child and taking the child by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you arise or in Aramaic, it's like kind of like a word for girl that they would use little lamb, little lamb. I say to you arise the hemorrhaging woman, right? She went to all these different physicians, but she finally met the great physician. And now just as we read this little, little girl, this little lamb meets her good shepherd immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astounded and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. I love this passage because of the the gentleness and tenderness of the Lord Jesus. And yes, he's powerful. Yes. He's the creator. Yes. He's the hero. Yes. He's the king, but he's so gentle. He raises her up. They're completely astounded. Even he could raise someone from the dead. And then I love that he says, make sure you give her something to eat. It's like only God knows that like dying, coming back to life, really just takes it out of you and makes you hungry. It's like, you need a snack, you know, once you die. It's like, and she's really back. That's the point. She can eat real food. She's not a, she's not spiritual being that doesn't have a body. But I, I just think that's, and it's just so sweet too of the Lord. It's like, oh, I'm gonna raise you from the dead, and like, she probably needs some food, so like, that will, whatever. So we see in this desperate request, in unexpected interruption, and in this powerful resolution that Jesus, He's able and willing to save. He's that's why I, I as as. The last thing about this little scene, I hate the one phrase so much. Verse 35, why trouble the teacher anymore? For two reasons. Number one, it's like he's not able to do it. Oh, well, maybe while she was still sick, you could like come in there and heal her. But now that she's dead, forget it. Showing their unbelief. But not only that, they act like it would trouble Jesus to go to the source of need. As if Jesus could be troubled by going to a little girl that needs to be raised from the dead. Like that's bothering him. Like don't bother the Lord Jesus with that. Jesus is able. He's powerful enough and he's willing to save all those who come to him. No exceptions. And we see that in, in one of these details. It's interesting. Mark does this on purpose. It's called the Mark and Sandwich, I read. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically it's, what, what, what do we see here? We see that this little girl, she's 12 years old. Where do we hear that somebody, the number 12 in this passage, the woman was suffering for how many years, 12 12 years. And, and Mark purposely, well, actually God purposely encountered these two people next to each other on purpose, but Mark wrote this book and put these stories together on purpose to show us. A point in this book that the whole book of Mark is about you need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to make the great confession that Peter makes later in the book that he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You are the one through whom I can have access to God. But this passage specifically shows us that all are able to come to Him. Whether you are the top of society and you're named by in the Bible, your name is in the Bible, and you're a synagogue ruler and you're respected. And you're honored and you're rich and you have servants and a house. Or whether you're a woman. And women in this time were seen as unimportant. It's just another, as a side a little annoying thing is always this whole thing about how Christianity degrades women. Well, you look at Christianity as what changed the world and gave women value. It's, a, it's an interesting historical study. But a woman who's nameless, She's suffering. She's in pain. She's isolated. Both come to Jesus in faith and both receive his power. Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him, whether you're the top or the bottom or like most of us, somewhere in between. Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him with no exception. If we recognize our need, if we recognize that we need a savior. And lastly... It's interesting that in verse 43, he says, gives them strict orders to tell no one about this. Why is that? Well, you see through the gospels that Jesus is very careful sometimes with information that would, in a sense, blow up his ministry. That would make him more famous than he almost wants to be at that time. That Jesus has a specific plan of timing that at some point there's going to be a frenzy of activity. There's going to be all kinds of people that are really excited about Jesus. And they're going to try to probably make him the king. And that's not going to go well. And it's going to end with his crucifixion. This whole book has a cross shape to it just like the life of Jesus. That he's saying, and just, this is, it has the, the vibe to it of my time has not yet come. For everyone to know that I'm raising people from the dead. Because that's going to end in my own crucifixion. And so, although this is a great picture of the heart of Christ towards us. that he's able and willing to save. What we've seen already in this passage is physical healing. Physical death. But Jesus came to deal with so much more than that. He does these miracles almost as an object lesson in the world for us to see what he's really come to do. And that's to go to the cross that maybe he was not made unclean. He actually made these people clean, a dead girl and an unclean woman. They're supposed to make you ceremonially unclean, but as Jesus, the Messiah touches them, they're made clean and he seems to be unaffected, but spiritually what we see is that on the cross, Jesus makes us clean. But he's made unclean. He becomes ceremonially unclean. He becomes rejected. He becomes cut off from God in his humanity. He suffers the hell and the punishment that we deserve because we're not just sick with sin. Yes, we're sick, but we actually have responsibility to take that. We are are condemned by God for good reasons, for sins that we've committed. We didn't wake up and, you know, you have a hemorrhage and that's not your fault. Yes, we're born with Adam's sin, but we make our debt worse every day with the sins that we commit. But that's what Jesus came to deal with. He's able and willing to save all those who come to him, no exceptions, and not just save them from an affliction or from death, but to save them from eternal hell. That we actually are better off than these people. Well, they have that as well, so I guess we're in the same boat. But we're better off because we have spiritual confidence that we will go to heaven one day because it's not based on what we've done but on what Christ has done. And if Christ loves unclean people like this who come to him in faith, if you're trusting in Jesus, he loves you the same way. He calls you his daughter and his son. He raises you from the dead and he cures your spiritual illnesses over time. And he rose from the dead to prove that all of that was true. Let's close in prayer.